Hey everyone, and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. And just a quick note before we get going, there will not be a weekly show next week. I have just got some stuff I've got to take care of, but I will be publishing uh, the second part of our most recent Snake Oilers special, so do keep an eye out for that one. We'll be checking in with Adam Boileau in just a moment to talk through the week's security news, and then it's on to this week's sponsor interview with Bernard Brantley, who is the Chief Information Security Officer of Corelight. Corelight makes the industry standard network data collection sensor. Uh, Corelight is the company that maintains Zeek, the open source network sensor, and uh, yeah, Bernard will stop by later on to tell us uh, about a tie-in they've done with Microsoft. You can now use Corelight to collect data for Microsoft Defender for IoT, so do hang around for that one. That is coming up later, but first up, of course, it's time for a check of the week's security news headlines with Adam Boileau. And uh, Adam, you're not going to sound as wonderful as usual this week because uh, you're out of the studio. Now, I understand you were having a weekend away with your daughter. She cut her foot on a rock, uh, so you had to take her to the hospital for some stitches. But because she's recently recovered from COVID, you had to take her to like the the biohazard zone uh, area in the hospital, right? And you had to sit in a tiny waiting room with a bunch of like COVID patients coughing on you for five hours is that is that about right that's a fair summary yes i, I was in the nasty hot zone full of nasty diseases uh, and i feel like i should probably operate on the assumption that i have COVID, although there is currently no sign that i do which i'm very glad about i mean but, it's, yes, it's coming... been like three or four days right you're fine so far yes like, yes I'm indestructible fine so far. indestructible <laughs> uh, but yeah of course you you are out of the studio because you had to extend your stay because you didn't want to go back to your household and and you know give people COVID. Exactly, yes. So I'm coming to you from a very glamorous uh, iPhone headset. Yeah, it still sounds it still sounds pretty good, right? So uh, that is absolutely fine. Okay, let's get into the news. And uh, I guess the first thing we're going to talk about uh, this week is Spring for Shell, uh, which is uh, which you know was sort of being touted by some as the next Log for Shell. You know, head for the hills, run, uh, and has turned into a bit of a fizzer. Uh, the funniest part of this, okay, so it's a Java framework vulnerability, right? Which, depending on who you ask, is the end of the world or not a big deal. But obviously, it being a Java framework vulnerability uh, still managed to be converted into a bunch of O'Day affecting VMware products. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a bit. <laughs> that seems to be what happens with these things. Uh, but walk us through Spring for Shell. You know, what what is it? Is it a big deal? Yeah, so the eponymous Spring is a framework for building Java web apps, amongst other things. Uh, and this is a pretty classic sort of bug in Java things where, you know, you're passing arguments back and forward from you know, the web browser into the server and it instantiates Java objects, you know, to kind of represent the data you provided. And then there's some way to turn that into you know, command execution through passing in, you know, sort of references or calls to functions that no one really had ever had any intent should be called in that way, but then leads to code execution. So pretty classic heaps of complexity, you know, that no one understands Java framework bug. Yeah. Um, and in the right conditions, which is like Java runtimes later than nine. And it has, with to a few be, other... it has to be running on Tomcat, that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, Tomcat. And then on a Tomcat in a particular, you know, configured in a, in a particular way, like deployed out of a, a .war container, not out of a jar with Spring Boot. In those circumstances, leads to straight up code execution um, and onwards to great shells. Now, the prerequisite conditions are actually not that uncommon. There's been a bit of confusion. And obviously, you know, I think, the Vuln researcher who or person that first posted about this, you're quite reasonably, I think, expected this to be a you know a planet melter because it has all the right ingredients. Mm. But what we don't understand really is like how prevalent is any particular deployment pattern of Java applications. And you know, answering any of those questions turns out to be much harder than even people who are experts in it think. And and log for shell, classic example of that. Like you and I and you know a bunch of people thought that was going to end the internet. Turned out it is actually a bit more complicated to triage and exploit and so on. Well, but I mean, a whole bunch of VMware VMware customers got yes. Owned, right? And yes, and you know, I think this is going to go exactly the same way. Like it is a legit bad bug uh, mm. and it will absolutely get people shell, but it's going to be that like per product, you know, stuff that is packaged with, you know, Java apps on the inside for admin consoles or whatever else. Uh, and people are going to have to go through and triage each one of those individually, figure out how to shell it in that particular context and onwards. So it's not going to be a, you know, one bug to wreck every Java on the internet, like we thought Log4J was going to be. But it is absolutely going to get things owned and it really does actually need to be patched. So I think the 
But is this yeah, okay? Yeah. So, so here's the question, right? Like around the Log4j stuff, uh, you know, you and I spoke to a CISO at a major technology company, and they were telling us, you know, what they were doing uh, to go through and, and sort this out. And it really was an all hands on deck situation. And there was a sense of urgency, you know, people working overtime, people cancelling uh, weekends and things like that. Should they be approaching this with the same degree of urgency? Uh, honestly, yes, I think so. Um, huh, that's if, interesting. If, uh, well, I think I'm afraid that, you know, the initial real big burst of hype then being counteracted by a man, this bug isn't that exciting after all, has now probably meant that some people are underestimating it. I think, like, if you're a average enterprise org that just consumes software, then probably it's, it's not going to be as bad as log, you know, Log4j. You shouldn't worry about as much. It, uh, but if you're a software vendor, you know, a VMware, a Cisco, uh, you know, anyone else that ships appliances, especially with embedded Java web apps, like those do need to be triaged because even if the deployment pattern is not the most common way of doing it, it's still very widespread. Uh, so yes, software devs, vendors, uh, I think do need to go triage this quickly. It's interesting because, you know, I've linked through this week to a, a piece from Ars and the headline is explaining Spring for Shell, the internet security disaster that wasn't. It's like the pendulum has fully swung back to the side uh, of downplaying this and you're saying yes. you don't you don't agree with that. No, I mean, I, you know, I think there are going to be a lot of people going to get a lot of shell through this. It's not a planet melter, but we've just seen how much focus this kind of, you know, Java apps get now. Because, I mean, especially if they're internet facing and, you know, plenty of people with, you know, admin interfaces, those kinds of things that are on the internet still for whatever reason. We are seeing that kind of target. Anything that's internet facing is, is being targeted. There are VPN appliances, for example. You know, we've seen how much of that. There's a bunch of us that use this sort of framework for their interfaces, you know, things are going to get shelled. So, yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, I think the pendulum did swing a bit hard on this one and we are all looking for a reason for there not to be a disaster yeah. <laughs> at this point and any excuse to downplay it, I think, is, is being taken here. Yeah, well, I mean, Richard Chergwin over at IT News has written up a story, uh, as, I, as I was joking about, VMware is affected by this. And the reason I made that joke, obviously, is because, like, if you got owned via Log4Shell, chances are it was through a VMware product because people went hard on that one. I would also I would also point out too that APT crews did use Log4Shell um, yes. early on, right? And that was something that we didn't find out about until a couple of months later, but they were on that kind of immediately. Uh, but Churgs has pointed out that, you know, there's a bunch of vendors now looking into this. So I guess, uh, yeah, we'll just expect to see a pretty steady drip of uh, patches. Yeah, I think APT crews are equipped to spend the time to pull apart a bug like this that does have complex prerequisites but still gets you what you need, whereas crime gangs just want something they can fire everywhere very quickly, very easily, without necessarily having to invest so much. So, like, I do think we'll see shells. Now, obviously, the the attack against uh, Viasat, uh, the the you know, satellite internet provider uh, covering Ukraine, uh, that's an attack that we've spoken about quite a few times on this show and it looks like now we've got a pretty good idea about what actually happened um thanks to some well some analysis first from uh sentinel one where it looks like they found some sort of mips wiper that got uploaded to virus total which is very funny considering you and i were just making virus total jokes uh recently about how like you know <laughs> don't do whatever this person did um so they pulled down they pulled down this mips wiper and, and theorized that it was actually um uh used to wipe these satcom uh modems and then uh ruben santamata um who you know we've spoken about his work uh previously uh it looks like he's managed to get a hold of a modem and and basically confirmed yeah this was the wiper used what was interesting is there were sort of two camps there were the people Ruben's camp saying this was done with malicious commands like management commands directed towards the modems and other people saying it was a typical wiper uh, uh, attack I actually did say in private um, to a few people I think it's both because there's obviously going to be some really dumb command that's going to let you load a wiper and it turns out that is actually exactly what happened Yes, yeah, Ruben uh, dug into um, the firmware and looked at, he had speculated, I think last week when we talked about it, about be, it being done by the TRO69 management protocol, which is common to all sorts of, you know, consumer premises, routers and wired networks, as well as, you know, turns out satellites as well. And yes, he went through the firmware and figured out that there is actually a TRO69 command that can be sent from the management, you know, ACS server 
um, to be able to just upload and run a binary uh, without any signature checking, without any other controls. He also pointed out a bunch of like command injection bugs if you wanted to do it with a bug instead of a feature. Um, and that really does seem to line up with all of the other information we're starting to see. I mean, the analysis from Sentinel-1 had speculated, you know, entry into the management network. Uh, Viasat themselves came out and said uh, that the point of entry was a VPN, you know, a misconfigured VPN uh, device on the edge of the network at their like Italian service partner. And then Ruben Santamata went and dug up uh, some details about that operator from uh, like Shodan and they had some Fortinets and, you know, the whole path starts to become you know, a little bit clearer about perhaps how this, how this played out. Yeah, yeah. So um, interestingly enough, Reuters has just run a story too saying that the, uh, the you know, quote, well, here's the headline, hackers who crippled Viasat modems in Ukraine are still active. So it looks like they're still having a time of uh, dealing with these attackers. Yeah, I imagine it's not a particularly pleasant process. The um, the Reuters article suggests that maybe there's some denial of service that kicked off around the same time uh, against Viasat or you know Viasat related organisations when the wiper went out to try and hamper the response, and that there's some of that still going on. Although it, it wasn't super clear if maybe it's one of those things of you know now that you look at the logs, you see a bunch of stuff happening and assume that it's related as opposed to you know maybe it's just background noise. We don't well, really know. I, I, but it was my assumption actually that it would be a great distraction. You know, if you make the network unavailable and then modems start dropping off, you might not think, oh, they're being wiped. You yes. just think it was part of the DDoS, right? So yeah, no, that, think, that part yeah. seemed to track for me. Yeah, firing a DDoS at the same time is certainly a good idea. And we've seen that play out uh, when they took out power in Ukraine. You know, they mm. DDoSed the call center so people couldn't phone in uh, and things like that. So that's, a, yeah, I think yeah, that modus operandi is definitely a thing we've seen Russians do before. Yeah, now staying with Ukraine, uh, we got an interesting tweet here from Kevin Collier who uh, of NBC uh, who was in a uh, Zoom uh, press conference with the uh, UKR Telecom CIO. Uh, and that CIO has said that there have been some compromises in the network which have occurred from territory that, that Russians have captured, right? So the theory is it's possible uh, that Russian soldiers are, uh, are sort of capturing these guys and then uh, making them give up credentials uh, and whatnot, which is a pretty sort of awful uh, possibility. But it's also something that now uh, telcos in Ukraine and indeed, you know, all businesses with operations in Ukraine need to be aware of, which is Russia is perfectly happy uh, to commit war crimes like beating the crap out of your admins uh, so that they'll do what you tell them. Yes, it is definitely a bit of a thing to think about if you had an operation there or you have staff there, because um, it's not something I had, had considered as a you know as an attack vector. But of course, it makes complete sense. You know, the only challenging part there is kind of operationally for the military identifying people who would have useful access and then being able to action it. You know, kind of you know rapidly and and sensibly. But if they can manage to pull that together, then yeah, that's a it's a avenue of insider attack that. I guess has to be on the risk register these days because, geez, yeah. Well, and deprovisioning access quickly when an area falls. I mean, that's, I mean, just companies over there, they're going to just have to really rethink how they do access, right? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, you can almost imagine, um, you know, if you're using an Okta or a Duo or something else that does, you know, kind of risk based authentication and adds extra layers or denies people access based on risk things, like you'd almost kind of want to have. You know, Okta or do provide that as a service. You know, real time monitoring of the yeah. of the battle. And then is this coming from access. an area under occupation? Yeah, I mean that's almost the thing that you'd want to buy as a service. But Set flag what, a, what a grim world, you know. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, obviously we've all seen the reports over the last week or so of, you know, some of the horrible things happening over there. So, again, just, uh, you know, horrible, horrible stuff, right? So it's no surprise that they might be coercing admins into doing this, you know, doing their bidding, right? So that's something that uh, I guess, as we said, people who are operating, um, uh, you know, a presence in Ukraine, they need to keep that top of mind. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing news reports drip out, typical sort of stuff. There is a Russia-linked phishing campaign targeting uh, Ukrainian government officials, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and other European officials. This is, you know, not surprising news. I just thought it was worth mentioning because we're on the topic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nothing technically sophisticated here. It's the old-fashioned, like, here's an email with a RAR file attached and please unrar it and then, you know, click on my Word doc or my shortcut or whatever else. But, yeah, it, it just kind of shows that they are using all of the tools that are available to them. So, 
Yeah, yeah. got to stay frosty. Now, you and I have discussed a few times the Belarusian cyber uh, partisans, right? These uh, are people who are, you know, hacking for freedom uh, in Belarus. And uh, they claimed to have disrupted things like uh, rail ticketing systems and whatever to try to hamper the flow of uh, Russian materiel toward the war uh, in Ukraine. Uh, This story from The Telegraph, it's not a cyber story, but it is a story about what some activists or what would you call them? You know, resistance individuals uh, are actually doing in Belarus now to try to uh, screw up Belarusian uh, rail. And it involves stuff like throwing burning logs over the tracks and setting fire to signaling boxes and doing good old fashioned sabotage. The Belarusian uh, government has arrested a whole bunch of people. You know, they're beating the crap out of them and forcing confessions out of them. Uh, They've got a bunch of railway workers that they've arrested as well. Um, The reason I wanted to talk about this story is because it just goes to show that, you know, the cyber campaign targeting the railway stuff was really ineffective. This stuff, less so. It's apparently causing Russian movements some genuine problems. Yeah, I thought it was also interesting that that one of the reasons this, you know, as you say, classic sabotage campaign has been effective is because they are supported by some degree of cyber in the sense that they know when Russian military trains are going to go. Like some of the trains are running with, you know, kind of, this is just a glass shipment, you know, going somewhere. Um, but they've got information through people who worked at the railways about where the trains are coming from, where they're going to, so they can sabotage appropriately. Um, and, you know, if anything you know, looking at it as a combined ops sort of thing, you would kind of almost wish that the cyber partisans had maintained their access for intel reasons to then support physical sabotage. But by the versus but by the sound, cyber sabotage. But by the sounds of things, the railway workers are in on it, right? So it's not like they need that insider access when you know, you know, your cousin's husband or whatever uh, works down the rail yards, and you can just ask him a few questions. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah. I think you're very right that it is an interesting contrast between the effectiveness of these two campaigns and kind of shows cyber's place a little bit. Yes. <laughs> put this put is, us hackers in our place, you know? This is my point. But I also think it shows the risks that are involved with doing good old-fashioned sabotage. You know, yes, the nice thing true. about cyber is that you are less likely to have some Belarusian goon uh, kick down your front door and then beat you with a lead pipe, right? Like, yes. So it's it's... It's a completely different paradigm, but, you know, with this greater risk and with this bravery, you know, it looks like they're actually achieving something, which is screwing up Russian logistics, which is, uh, I'm sure I speak for both of us, Adam, when I say that this is something you and I would both support very much. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Now, we've got a story here from uh, Jonathan Grieg over at The Record. Apparently, a German wind turbine maker has been shut down after a so-called, you know, cyber attack. Now, normally, nine times out of ten, you read a headline like that and it turns out it was ransomware. But we are in this strange situation where perhaps some national interests and criminal interests are starting to converge in all sorts of unusual and, you know, unknown ways uh, at this point. And I don't know, the, the... this sort of thing has a bit of a symbolic edge to it for me, given everything that's going on with European energy, particularly German consumption of, you know, Russian oil and gas and whatnot. whatnot. Uh, and then we've got this attack against a turbine manufacturer. I don't know. And we haven't seen, we haven't seen this confirmed that it's ransomware. So I, for some reason, I just was drawn to this story and I thought, that's interesting. Did you have the same gut feel? Yeah, yes, I did. Absolutely. And it, it really is 50-50 whether it's just you know, kind of whether it's just ransomware and it happens to align with national interests or whether, you know, it is actually a, you know, a part of a large cam, you know, a larger campaign or a plan to make alternative energy more difficult for Europe yeah. to kind of apply pressure. And, you know, it absolutely can be both. <laughs> yeah, but that, <laughs> this know, is why I said sort of unknown ways, right? Because yeah. it could just be criminals trying to get money or it could be people in the Russian government saying, oh, yeah, you know, just resume business. But, hey, you know, here's here's some targets that we think would be you'd be helping us out as well. And they're all hopped up on nationalist fervor. So off they go. Yeah, I mean, there's that kind of spectrum of how state-controlled a particular actor or a particular act was that we see sometimes, you know, kicking around cyber Twitter, you know, whether it's state-directed or state-tolerated or, you know, state-sanctioned, you know, none of that. We don't really know where on that is, but at the very least, we can say that the interests, you know, of Russian pressure on Europe around energy certainly align with this happening. So, you know, you don't know which is cause and which is effect or, you know, exactly where, but. 
point, it seems it's like it seems like a lot of the Russian criminals just want to do things to support their government anyway, right? Yeah. So they wouldn't need to be directed or, you know, they wouldn't necessarily need any contact. But, you, you know, I guess the thing that I'm wondering about is why did this happen? Why this company? Yes. And that's it's the same for you by the sounds of things. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That was that was totally what I got from reading this. Yeah. Oh, well, let's see. Let's hope it's some, you know, Botswanian ransomware and, you know, <laughs> we're, we're both wrong and it's not we're not about to see a massive campaign by a uh, you know a, a country like Russia trying to hobble uh, a transition to clean energy because that would really really suck. <laughs> what a world! Yeah. <laughs> now uh, this one, I found this story. It's not getting a lot of attention, but I actually found it very interesting. Let's just put it like that: Mailchimp. Someone fished a Mailchimp admin or whatever, and a Mailchimp staffer, and then they went and accessed the accounts of 319 crypto and finance related you know, mail lists or, you know, marketing campaign lists or whatever. And they they wound up stealing the email lists for something like a hundred of these accounts. Okay, so we're talking a lot of email addresses and now they're running off and doing uh, crypto-related phishing, but very well targeted because they have the correct addresses. Very well targeted um, uh, phishing campaigns designed to steal people's crypto. The thing that I found interesting about this is if you're working at MailChimp, you're dealing with that sort of data, this is an attack that a few YubiKeys could have prevented. And you just think, what are you doing? Yeah, you're very right. Uh, and I guess it kind of underscores this kind of service didn't used to be, you know, big infrastructure, was an important infrastructure a few years back. Cryptocurrency has changed the economics of security, right? It's made mm. it matter in ways that it never used to because you can still find MailChimp million, 500 is million critical more. financial infrastructure. I know, right? And then <laughs> the other thing that struck me reading this story was uh, a few weeks ago, you said, you know, you said something about, um, uh, cryptocurrency exchange operators cosplaying as central bankers. Mm. And I read this and I thought, well, now they also need to like have all the sorts of supply chain assurance and stuff that every other bank and financial institute has to go through, like all of the vetting of various suppliers and understand their postures and make them fill in forms and get attestation from vendors. And it's like, at some point, they're just going to finish reinventing the entire banking system with all of its problems. But I mean, you could even you could even take over the MailChimp account for some company that's sort of tangential to a crypto exchange, right? And dress it up as a marketing promotion. You're phishing emails. Hey, subscriber to this service. Uh, our friends at, you know, whatever, Acme Exchange are giving away 50 bucks in, you know, turd coin. Uh, click here and, you know, get, get your free turd coin. So it's I just... Pictures. Yeah, so I just sort of think... And this is what struck me, struck me exactly the same thing, right? Which is that MailChimp now is kind of an important target and they all should be using YubiKeys. <laughs> just like, <laughs> what a world. I know, it is. it's just crazy. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, for everyone who's built a service and thought that, you know, it wasn't super important and we'd bolt security on later when it was time to go sell out or something, like everyone's having to just kind of rethink things a bit because, you know, the, the risk world around you changes constantly and it's not you know one of your downstream downstream customers all of a sudden having a business model that supports theft you know yeah. supports currency transfers or whatever else it could just change everything for you as well so yeah, yeah. so apparently yeah they're doing spam like pretend newsletters targeting people who have something called a trezor cryptocurrency wallet uh, <laughs> i'm not going to educate myself to discover what that no. is um I have other things to do, like... you got to hodl your turd coin. <laughs> That's right. Uh, a couple of the teenagers who are alleged to be uh, connected to the, the so-called Lapsus group have appeared in court in London. Did we learn anything from this appearance, Adam? Uh, no, they were charged with, you know, the usual sorts of things you would expect, some fraud, false representation, unauthorized access to a computer. But yeah, no no further information about whether there is a confirmed title lapsus yet or, you know, of the, or any information about the other people who were rounded up at the time. Um, and they've both been released on bail. So hopefully, you know, they've got plenty of cryptocurrency with which to use to skip the country or something. They're going to abscond yes. Googling uh, private jet accept Bitcoin, yeah. uh, <laughs> basically. <laughs> At least uh, once they could buy something with a Bitcoin that exceeded the carbon cost of the Bitcoin transaction. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, the other members have been staying active uh, by the looks of things with a, a firm that I confess I'd never heard of called Globant. Uh, disclosing a hack. Apparently, Lapsus leaked 70 gig of stolen data. You know, they're all over Telegram saying, you know, Lola, we're back from our holiday and stuff. And, um, you know, so they're still out there causing havoc. We still haven't heard 
anything, as we kind of predicted, we still haven't heard of any sort of flow on from this Okta, you know, so-called Okta breach at a, at a third party support engineer's account. But yeah, Globant certainly having a bad time. And you've got it, like, if you want to have a laugh, read Globant's website. Let me load it up because it's, you read their website and they're one of those companies that you still can't tell what they do when you read their <laughs> website. Because I think it was someone's like, oh, they got Globant. I'm like, who the f- is Globant? Okay, so here yeah. we go. Front page, seek reinvention. Reinvention moves the world forward and that's what we do best. We help organizations reinvent themselves through digital and cognitive transformation. <laughs> but, but what is it? <laughs> and hang on, our services, let's go. There's a line under our services, augmenting your company, your people, your future through digital and cognitive transformation. So here's their services. They blend engineering, innovation, and design with a unique approach to enable business reinvention, Adam. (laughs) But what is it? And they've got to think, well, here's their product. Their product is called Studios by Globant. And each studio represents deep pockets of expertise in the latest technologies and trends. Our studio model includes reinvention studios, which aim to revolutionize and reinvent specific industries and the digital studios that focus on developing business models and technical capabilities on the latest technologies and trends to help you digitally transform your business. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is either. (laughs) But apparently Lapsus hacked them and there's 70 gig of data out there now. So maybe if we read the 70 gig of data, we'll get a better idea. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's something I could summarize for us what it is that they do. Uh, they have proprietary cybersecurity tools. I just click on the cybersecurity tab, so that's good. Yeah, yeah, I guess they're working really well. <laughs> um, CyberScoop uh, has written up a Mandiant report that says Fin7, the you know uh, very well-known financial crime uh, group, uh, so financial cybercrime group, uh, that they are moving pretty hard into ransomware. This isn't exactly new information. We had the FBI drop a warning sometime around January. I don't know if you remember this, but they were ma- they were snail mailing ransomware to to various organizations on USB sticks and. Um, yeah, but apparently Fin7 is really starting to focus a lot more on ransomware, which is like, yeah, not exactly great news. No, not great news. Although they seem a little bit late to the party. I would have thought that they would be rolling uh, you know, rolling on this market opportunity before now, but uh, maybe they've got some you know, special competitive mechanism that they can use uh, that will make them better at it than, their, uh, than the other crime groups. But I don't know. It's always interesting watching, an, you know, I guess what's relatively an OG group, you know, kind of doing things differently than the rest of the you know more modern crews. So I don't know. We'll see how successful they are. Are they dropping other people's malware or are they writing their own? Uh, so there's been a bunch of tie-ups with other various, you know, ransomware operators. We've seen some tie-in with the Black Hat, with the Ryuk crew, with the Maze crew. You know, there's such a sort of flux of people and tooling between organizations that it's really hard to pin down, you know, anything. It's hard to say, right? Because they yeah. could also be members of those groups. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it is kind of difficult to tell. And I'm, you know, even the... Even the people who are, you know, watchers of that scene hanging out at the forums and stuff, you know, it is just such a fluid, constantly changing sort of environment. Yeah, we don't, we don't really know. So, I guess we'll find out when they hack someone. An NSA employee uh, has been arrested and charged with sending classified national security information to someone who was not authorized to receive it. This is a Emma Vale report from uh, from the record. Uh, it's pretty funny though because this guy's job apparently, uh, Mark Robert Unkenholz. Uh, who's a 60-year-old Maryland resident. Apparently, it was like his job to do the the interface with private industry sort of side of this stuff. And yeah, he was emailing a lot of stuff to his own email address. And then I think he may have passed some classified stuff on to someone else. It doesn't really sound like it was anything nefarious. It just sounds like it was really dumb. Yeah, it doesn't did not sound like espionage. When I think they said uh, the recipients that he was sending stuff to, um, one of the recipients at least, uh, had actually held a top-secret clearance uh, for a number of years and had just kind of not was not in a position now in a private company where it had been renewed so you know it seems like one of those like getting things done the wrong way but fast rather than yeah. espionage yeah don't send the top secret stuff to people's aol accounts though that's uh they don't that, like that is that. A, a good piece of advice yes yeah, they do not like that oh and there's a big uh fight happening in uh, Washington right now. Uh, now, back in 2018, regular listeners would know that uh, there was a, a policy memorandum that went out called NSPM 13, uh, which essentially gave autonomy to Cyber Command to, uh, and, and DOD generally, I, I believe, um, to sort of 
yeah, have more autonomy in doing cyber stuff, right? Now, at the time, we sort of said, well, let's see how it goes because I imagine getting authorization from the White House every time you want to pop shell is pretty hard. And, uh, you know, certainly that's um, that's the word on the on the grapevine, right? Now, Biden's in the White House. They're looking at rolling this back and it's just turning into a huge bun fight. Yeah, there certainly seems to be a, a plurality of opinions about what the correct approach is. Um, DOD and a bunch of the, you know, sort of Republican politicians, you know, argue that slowing down the ability to operate in the cybers uh, at the moment, you know, when we're in, I guess, a pretty dynamic situation, perhaps is contrary to US interests. You know, on the other hand, the importance of cyber in geopolitical relations now kind of, you know, kind of reminds me of the you know, the argument back in the 50s and 60s about civilian control of nuclear weapons, right, where it's too important to leave delegated out to a field commander to make the choice to use a, you know, a tactical nuke artillery shell versus a, you know, explosive one. And so, you know, we invented, you know, retained civilian control. And here, I guess they're arguing that the potential of fallout may be beyond what people at Cyber Command can think about, which, you know, I'm sure they do think about things, but perhaps, you know, civilian uh, control is a thing that they want. But I mean, ultimately, ultimately, they're still answerable to the White House, right? Wow. So this idea that, like, there isn't that natural break on this, they know that if they do the wrong thing, they're gonna get, they're gonna have a bad time, yes, right? So, yeah. and I guess that's the difference. Do you want to, you know, do it and risk getting yelled at, or just never get approval, right? How are you supposed to do persistent engagement when you have to ask for permission every single time? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it certainly is a pain. And I've done, you know, I've done plenty of engagements at work, you know, either, you know, testing or, you know, red teamy sort of stuff where the rules of engagement do not support you succeeding, you know, and you get <laughs> hampered by those rules. And sometimes they're for good reasons and sometimes they're just not. Um, and so I have a lot of sympathy for that. And I think, you know, the, uh, you know, one of the arguments being used uh, by people who are in favor of scaling back the ability of, of Cyber Command to just kind of maneuver on their own is, well, you know, show us the successes, like show us why they have used their capabilities in the last few years well. And, you know, that's a hard conversation because, well, I mean, how much of that can't they talk about? How much of it is persistent access, getting into position, being ready, having all the things there for when you really need them? You, you know, you, I mean, obviously there's people involved in the oversight of this that have the necessary clearances and stuff, but it's just, you know, it's difficult to talk about concrete outcomes with cyber things, you know, and mm. that, you know, people who are arguing, that part, that angle of it, you know, I, I, I would, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I'd, I'd say the counterpoint to that is a pretty easy one, which is show us the harm, you know, show us what's gone wrong. Right. And uh, you know, we, we haven't really heard of anything, you know, actually going wrong. So, and I think if something, cause they always talk about these, you know, spectacularly bad scenarios where they've, you know, triggered some major geopolitical event. I just don't really see it happening, you know, and there's even someone who was arguing for the rollback saying, oh, well, what if, you know, Biden's going to meet Xi Jinping or something. And, you know, these guys are all off hacking, hacking the Chinese. Well, a, they do that to America. The Chinese do that to America all the time anyway. And B, it's not like if you allow them some autonomy, they're going to ignore a call from the White House that says, no. could you please put a pause on that activity, right? So I just sort of feel like, you know, maybe there's, a, maybe there's some space to meet in the middle uh, where they can, you know, give sort of uh, quite wide authorizations without them being blanket. I don't know. But as I say, it is turning into an absolute shit fight. Yeah, and I, I'm certainly not envious of the people who are involved in this in any capacity because it sounds tedious and a lot of meetings. Uh. Now, Adam, we're going to talk about browsers and certificate authorities. Now, this is a system that doesn't work very well. Let's be honest. There's yes. a whole bunch of crappy CAs that are, that are trusted by browsers. Uh, we've seen them get owned. We've seen APT crews minting certificates for legit services with this access. Uh, we see organizations that are trusted by browser makers that have no business being trusted by browser makers. Now I want to ask you a question. How could we make this worse? Because, <laughs> because that seems to be what the EU is uh, trying to do right now, to take a, a, a bad situation and just turn it into a completely f***ed up situation. <laughs> yes. The, um, the European Union and their wisdom are suggesting that essentially countries in the EU, EU be allowed to designate organisations to just mint certificates and that they would be then trusted by the browser vendors, like taking some of that control away from, you know, Mozilla and Google and Microsoft. Yeah, they'd be mandating that, you know, you have to support this CA, uh, which is, you know, probably run by the president's cousin or whatever. 
exactly yes and also is probably less willing to make the sorts of disruptive decisions that say mozilla would make when they see a ca that's behaving badly to just kind of throw them out of the of the trust route and yeah i mean obviously the european union does care about improving the quality of the cybers and and you know they've done some good work i mean gdpr it's not without its flaws but i mean privacy is good i guess and Mm. you know it's not the best thing we've ever seen but it certainly was a reasonable thing to attempt to do this just doesn't seem like it's going to advance the situation overall and you know the precedence for having certificate authorities that operate in national interests is also not yeah super storied you know it's not a super no, great history it's not great because then you can get all sorts of stuff signed can't you you know Ex- exactly and i you know i could support a change to i, I could imagine supporting this if it was like constrained routes so you could say like there's a certificate authority in belgium and they can sign things that end in you know b.eu or something like that where there's some tld where inside then national authorities can can sign certificates in a certain namespace but constrained routes are difficult and not but a i thing just think what's really... the what's the problem you're trying to solve and there is also that yes you know <laughs> you, you got like like, is it a technical problem? Is it a, like, European, you know, kind of independence thing? Is it just that the, you know, European Parliament and the European Union honestly, does kind of like regulating? This is this is the thing. It's honestly, like, it, to me, this just strikes me as a, like, well, this should clearly be regulated. You know, it's regulators seeing something unregulated that's important and going, we should regulate it. Like, that's the only <laughs> thing I can think of that explains this. I guess this is, you know, this is how we end up with, you know, cheese regulations about where the cheese has to come from and what you can, what you can call it. So, and what you can yeah. call fish, you know, and what, um, you can, yeah. what you can call fish and chips in England, which is, which yeah. was, you know, just kind of dumb. And I, I reckon ten percent of the pro Brexit vote just came from the fish and chips thing. I swear. <laughs> Probably. <yes. laughs> oh dear. I mean, I don't know whether this is going to get off the ground. I mean, the browser vendors are all pretty keen on on a, you know not having to do this, but I mean, the EU is waving their stick around, and maybe this will get lumped in with a bunch of other stuff that perhaps is more well thought through. But yeah, I'm not I'm not compelled by it. Now we're going to talk about audacity, Adam. It might not seem like it, but bear with me for a moment. Now, can you imagine having the audacity? to offer a security product that comes with like, you know, early 2000s style web bugs in it that are, that are trivially turnable, you know, into, into RCE that you can get RCE with. (laughs) Now the audacity part is the, that you then name this product apex central. Uh, So way to go trend micro because they, yeah, they had an absolute clangor in one of their products and you know, it was getting, it was getting exploded in the wild by God knows who. I mean, probably the Chinese, right? That's probably the, the Chinese, because they seem to love owning trend products. But they, yeah, they walk, walk, us, walk us through this one. Yeah, so this was like a lack of authentication on some API endpoint that you could then just like straight up file upload and code exec, which like what, what year is it, as you as you say? And in a security product, uh, which I wish I was surprised. But, I, mean, I mean, this is something that we've said on the show a bunch of times. Like occasionally you see a bug where you're like, okay, there's just no excuse for that one. Any vendor operating something that, you know, there's a web console component to it, even if it's an on-prem thing, even if it's an old product, you need to get that stuff tested because you will find this stuff and you can fix it before a Chinese APT crew is using it to own your customers. Yes. And I mean, to be honest, like we look at a bunch of software, you know, from vendors that, you know, is in exactly this category. And even when we know it's been looked at by other people, but there's always bugs to be found. You know, the stuff is like finding bugs in these types of products is, I mean, it is a little bit of a niche because, you know, embedded vendor systems tend to not, like if you just went through normal web app scanning stuff, you probably wouldn't necessarily get anywhere. There is like a specific methodology that we use for pulling apart these kinds of systems and finding the sorts of bugs that you're talking about. And it's not always super straightforward, but yeah, you just like people are going to find them. And especially now when every internet facing, you know, service is a great entry point. You know, we've kind of passed the point where it's just IE bugs or just phishing, right? These devices are such a target. And yeah, if you're a vendor, you just got no mm. excuse. But I think we're I think we're sort of long long past the time when your NDR console or your AV management console or your F5 or any of that shit 
should be on the internet, right? Like that's, you know, so the customer is, I guess, partly to blame here, but uh, it's a sort of sad day where you have to recommend a product that you say, well, just don't let anyone connect to it. God. Yeah. And, And then promise also as a vendor that you don't just run the same software in your SaaS you know, internet-facing SaaS platform version of it. Well, they've patched yeah. that one, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though, right? Because as much as it's an old bug, at least it's a file include vulnerability applying to an API. <laughs> like if I've taken the glass half full approach, right? I mean, that's better than a Perl CGI bin, which that's what, that, that's later on in the in the new section where we talk about CGI bins. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Apple's shipped fixes for a couple of O days, apparently. I think by the looks of things, they were floating around in the wild. And I think this trend that we've seen over the last couple of years of um, some fairly sophisticated O days kind of surfacing with more frequency. Uh, you know, I think that's a trend that's going to continue. But largely, you're seeing a lot of this stuff is being discovered by groups like Google Tag. So that's a that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. I mean, and the focus on certain high-value bits of attack surface, you know, things that are, you know, Apple media parsing. One of these bugs was in a, like a, a video codec. You know, those sorts of things are getting a bunch of attention. And, you know, I think also attackers that use expensive, fancy bugs like that in the wild are getting caught faster, which yeah, is also yeah, great. Yeah, 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 that's it, you know. And I think, you know, this was reported by anonymous researchers, so I don't know whether that means it was ASD or something, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah, we don't know. Uh, no idea. Um, I will just give a plug too for um, the latest episode of Darknet Diaries uh, is a long interview with HD Moore and a, and a good rundown of the history of Metasploit. Uh, it's a really cool interview and I think everybody who's not familiar with that history should uh, check it out. It's a really funny section at the end actually. This is what just got me thinking about it is you know, Jack Rysida, who's the host of, of Darknet Diaries, was asking HD, you know, if he's if he's still doing exploit stuff. And he's like, he basically said, no, nah, man, that stuff's too hard now. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, yes. it's just, it's just way too hard. So, you know. Yeah, yeah I, I know those feels, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not the same game that it used to be. So, you know, keep in mind, every time you see one of these things getting crushed, man, you are just throwing a lot of work in the bin every time you patch one of these. Yes, yeah, exactly right. I've been a couple of hundred thousand dollars of the work down the drain every time someone patches their iPhone. So, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a positive at least, one of the few. It was it's a great section of that podcast too where HD's talking about the time where they fuzzed like 600 IE bugs and just started, and just started dropping one a day and did that for a month. Uh, and then <laughs> basically said to Microsoft, we could keep going every day for a year. Maybe you should, you know, get rid of ActiveX and they wound up doing it. That's so. <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, some wonderful history. Like if you've only been in the industry like a shorter time, yeah, go check out that podcast. You'll, you'll, you'll discover a lot of wonderful things. And yeah, okay. So we've got a yeah firewall and <laughs> VPN uh, devices from Zyxel. Uh, they've, they've been patched because they have some, uh, yeah, horrible, horrible bugs in them. Yep, and this was the one that the Zyxel said was a CGI bin, like classic web interface, you know, sort of bug, and that that makes me feel good. You know, that's what, exactly what you want in your firewall and VPN appliances, like classic 90s CGI bins. Um, yeah. But yes, I don't know, like Zyxel made good modems in the 90s, but I don't know that I would necessarily want a Zyxel firewall. That, yeah, you know. that was going to be my next question. Does anyone actually use these things? I, I mean, I think, you know, small business stuff maybe, but I don't think yeah. I've ever seen an enterprise Zyxel. Yeah, well, Zyxel, coming soon to a botnet near you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, GitLab's patched another one as well, which looked like it was actually kind of, you know, reasonably serious. I'm not trying to dwell on bugs, though, this week, because I'm sure every, all of our listeners uh, have access to that sort of information through other sources. And of course, Adam, it wouldn't be an episode of Risky Business these days unless we spoke about some DeFi platform that got owned. Uh, this one is called Ola Finance and Chow 5 million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it seems like the usual sorts of bugs in there, you know, kind of like doing something like lending as a service thing on the blockchain where you can take out loans. And I assume it was some re-entrancy thing or whatever else but anyway yeah five million bucks worth of, of fake turd coin off into the world somewhere and uh the company is trying to figure out how to pay people back this is just normal life cycle stuff uh, for any cryptocurrency service it seems yeah yeah that's right and we're going to end with a write-up by uh, simon sharwood a journalist uh, uh who's based uh, here in australia uh about a hack of an indian bank and this is like a smaller indian bank and it's you know it's just such depressing reading Attackers were able to get in there, manipulate balances, and then do ATM cash out 
they ran away with a million bucks or something. But you read about like how little resistance these attackers had inside this network and you just realize there are there are organizations out there, including banks, that just do not stand a chance, even against some very basic tradecraft. And of course, you say small bank, but on an Indian scale, like there's still 45 branches. I mean, in New Zealand, that would be a reasonable size bank. Um, <laughs> that wouldn't yeah, even so- be a decent size bank in Australia. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, they. Uh, it, it appears that they got fished, uh, and none of the employees particularly had much in the way of phishing awareness. Uh, they didn't appear to have much segregation internally between you know bank systems, branches, head office, yeah, desktops. It's one big old flat network in one there. One big old flat yeah. network. Uh, they didn't have any you know like um, EDR or even like valid antivirus. I think it's said, and they had their their, their firewalls license had expired. It wasn't update, and it, yeah, it really did sound like a, you know a laundry list uh, of all the things that could go wrong. Uh, with an enterprise IT. So I imagine the people who landed there were, you know, having a jolly old laugh. Uh, yeah, ad, admin, admin to their way into the core banking system or whatever it was. So I'm, yeah. I'm actually expri- I'm actually quite surprised at how little of this sort of stuff we see in developing countries. You know, I would have expected this sort of thing to hit crisis point by now, and it hasn't. And I do hope I'm wrong, but I feel like it might be coming. Uh, you're probably right. I mean, it does seem like a thing that, I mean, maybe it just happens, you know, a lot on a small scale, you know, lots of small scale things. Uh, and also, the, I guess, the quality of investigation and response. Yeah. You know, plus, and media you know, coverage, it, right? And media coverage. And there's probably not much, there's not the same sorts of incentives to have to disclose to customers or regulators or whatever else you know, in other developing places in the world. In this case, the Hyderabad police appear to have done an actually pretty good job. Uh, there's a great presentation um, uh, from the police talking about, you know, the, the aspects of this. Uh, so I mean, that's probably the main reason we are talking about this piece is because the, the police in Hyderabad uh, appear to have done a good job. So compared to our story last week talking about the, uh, you know, the FBI's poor response to ransomware victims in the US, maybe it's nice to see the Hyderabad police uh, showing how it's done. Maybe they could uh, offer some training to the FBI. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> should send a liaison across to the, you yeah. know, so, and I'll, and look, the, with apologies to our listeners at the FBI, because I, I, I know we have quite a few, and like you know, <laughs> tongue tongue firmly in cheek. But, yes, but come on, exactly. If you yes. can't laugh at the big guy, you know, yeah. who can you laugh at? Um, <laughs> Adam, that is actually it for the week's news. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned at the top of the show, no episode next week, uh, but we should be back on deck the week after that. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. And yes, we'll let a week of bad things happen, and then we'll have lots to talk about. Good fun. <laughs> That was Adam Boileau there with Check of the Week's Security News. It's time for this week's sponsor interview now with Bernard Brantley, the Chief Information Security Officer of Corelight. And yeah, Corelight makes a network sensor you can use to like plug into your SIEM, for example. Uh, it's based on Zeek, which is the open source network sensor that Corelight maintains. And, uh, you know, Zeek really is the industry standard for this sort of stuff. And uh, they've just become the standard for something a little bit more niche as well, which is uh, Microsoft Defender for IoT. Uh, so Microsoft Defender for IoT can now accept Corelight data. So here is Bernard Brantley explaining that Microsoft's definition of IoT more or less means anything that's not managed uh, rather than, you know, small, crappy, embedded device. Here's Bernard. Enjoy. Yep. So Microsoft applies a, a pretty broad coverage to the word IoT. And essentially for them, it means anything that's unmanaged, um, that being a phone, laptop, or your just what people consider IoT devices mm. that would land on a network. So with Defender for IoT, they are really bringing visibility for that broader context of things that are sitting in the environment that don't necessarily have a Microsoft agent on them to be able to be visualized and instrumented around within the Microsoft product. So I don't look at it as a a standalone, hey, Defender for IoT, I'm talking about how is Microsoft securing my refrigerator and TV. I'm looking at Defender for IoT and how is Microsoft bringing in printers? How is Microsoft bringing in mobile phones? Uh, If someone installs a rogue asset on my network that I don't know anything about, how does Microsoft gain visibility into that? And so that is that is the the core of what the Defender for IoT product covers. Um, And with that, you know, we've been able to to become the only technical alliance partner there. Uh, to really flesh out the discovery of those IoT assets from a network well, component. Well, this is the part I'm curious about, right? Because Defender for IoT, from what I can tell, is Microsoft's own passive 
you know, IoT discovery thing, right? So you plug it into a span port or whatever and, and you're going to start seeing devices pop up and they handle all of the cataloging and display and all of that sort of stuff. So aren't they doing the bit that you do already? Like that's why I was like, well, why do you need... Or, or, is, it, or is it sort of the case that maybe, you know, for a lot of your customers, they're not going to want to deploy Microsoft's sensors. They're going to want to use yours because they're already using yours. Is that kind of the point of this integration? Yep, it's a bit of both. So Microsoft did, uh, and, and I can't speak to the specific company that they engaged with or acquired that provided that network visibility tooling for them, but um, they they saw Corelight and the amount of data that we provided as like a plus version of that. So going beyond just capturing flow data that may be coming out of the Microsoft component that's layered into your span network to augment the Defender for uh, IoT data, we've now got the entire richness of the core light data set that is included in that visibility plane. So you're not trying to capture the same data, you're trying to actually just tie in with the stuff that the Microsoft side of it is collecting. Well, we would be we would be a bit of a replacement, right? So there's three three tiers, right? So you get you've just got the basic uh, Defender for IoT product, which is any visibility that's that's native to the environment. Um, you've got the the Microsoft native capability where they provide the Microsoft tap or uh, visibility tool that gives you some level of flow data that, to support the Defender for IoT product. And then you've got the plus, which is where Corelight comes in. And you see all that data that would come from that flow perspective, plus all the interesting logs with HTTP, SSL, DNS, DHCP, et cetera. So when you're thinking about, you know, what is it that Defender is providing me? And what are the workflows around which I leverage a Defender product to improve my security? Um, that rich data that's coming out of something like Corelight, or in this case, Corelight as a standalone, since we're the only alliance partner there, how does that augment Microsoft's ability to both present data to the end customer and then develop new detections or workflows around what's being provided as a kind of that, that raw um that raw base of information for them to do some level of future development on. I'm curious how this came about. I'm really curious how this came about, right? Because like in, in my experience and I, you know, I'll happily acknowledge that for all I know, this has changed, but people don't tend to care all that much. Most enterprises don't tend to care all that much about IOT devices on their network, right? Like it's just not something they think about. So, you know, where was this demand for, for you to do this integration um, with a, with a product from Microsoft that handles this sort of thing? You know, I think that's that's a that's a really interesting question, and I cannot give you the um, behind the scenes of who decided at Microsoft to come after Corelight. I do know that in my time at Microsoft, I was uh, instrumental in getting some of the Corelight stuff up in the visibility to the to the higher levels. I deployed it as a part of my uh, work within their HBA spaces to provide network security monitoring, and so that became uh, quite widely adopted throughout those spaces. So, so I guess and it was, you're saying it was initiated by Microsoft though, this, uh, this partnership. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's yep. the bit I was curious about, right? Because I'm just like, uh, you know, it was someone's idea. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those things that is, is kind of like a golden egg for Corelight specifically, because we're always looking for ways to integrate with these major partners that are providing security outputs to a broad class of customers. And to be able to to jump in with with Microsoft on an, on an offering like this is just um, you know I see it as a major endorsement for the value of network with respect to what they're trying to provide to customers. And it's not them alone. You know, we've we've in the last uh, year. I'm not sure if you've seen any of the the news releases around who we've partnered with or some of the investments that we've received. But we've we're there with CrowdStrike now. Mm. Right, the CrowdStrike is seeing a major, major value in the network visibility to augment their current offerings, specifically like Falcon XDR. We've got integrations with Splunk and Elastic, right? So these these major providers that are there that are offering an experience to their end customers and looking to to squeeze the maximum value out of that are really starting to focus down on the network. Um, I think that what we've seen over the last twelve to eighteen months is that. You know, XDR vendors may disagree on a number of different things, but the one thing that's consistent is the value of the network data. Well, Um, and I think that's what makes having something like Corelight, or even if it wasn't you, there needs to be a de facto network data collection agent, right? And and it's sort of something that uh, on the endpoint side, 
Well, I guess it should really be achievable on the endpoint side as well. But then you get into discussions around monopoly and and whatever. But on the network side, it yeah, I don't know why. I cannot tell you why, but in my head, it makes more sense to have a de facto standard on the network side than it does on the desktop side. Yeah, and, and the reality is regardless of how good these EDR vendors are, they're only viable on the host that they are installed on. Mm. Meaning that as you move out to like that printer landscape where you've got somebody that logs onto your network with a phone of some type, right? You don't have an EDR system on those things. So without that broad network coverage on the network alone, you Well, miss. I guess that's, yeah, that's why it makes sense, isn't it? Is because yeah. you're not able to get an EDR agent onto absolutely everything. So yeah, you can be a little bit more generic with your network technology than you can with an endpoint technology. Huh. There you go. You absolutely. just cleared that up for me. Thanks, Bernard. <laughs> And then, as, as I mentioned, you know, when you think about what it is that Corelite provides through through open source Zeek and what that data means from an analysis perspective and kind of that look back perspective, what else, like if, if I'm thinking forward to what's my horizon and horizon two and horizon three for new analytics, new security, um, new security outputs, it rests on having that raw data available that is reflective of anything that's been going on in my environment to then build upon and offer new value to customers. Whereas today, hey, we may be just doing asset discovery in Microsoft Defender for IoT, or we may do, be doing a asset discovery plus DHCP, but the data for SSL is there, the data for DNS is there, the data for HTTP is there. Should it become value to customers, it's not a stretch to say Microsoft flicks a button and all these things become immediately available as a Microsoft native offering in Defender for IoT, notwithstanding the customer's ability to go back within their own data sets and do that type of analysis or investigation on the network. One thing I'm going to ask you, and I've been curious about this for a while, mm -hmm. are you aware of anyone who's just written a detection engine for Corelight, even just the open source version, right? Because, you know... Corelight doesn't really do that. You don't really do that part of it. You do the collection of the information. And then typically, I mean, your clients, your customers, they're quite, they tend to be quite big, um, at least at this point, right? So they know what to do with that data. The thing that I'm curious about, though, is, you know, the information that you collect is so valuable. I would have thought, you know, some company out there would have written... You know, just a basic detection engine for Zeek that sits on top of it and they license it for, you know, X number of dollars a month or whatever like that. Are you aware of anyone having done that yet? And if you're not, are you surprised that no one's done that yet? Well, I will say that we've got some interesting things coming to market soon that may answer <laughs> that very question for you. Um, but, you know, we really, we really look at enabling our customers and the defenders to use the data at their will. So within the Corelight product itself, we, we have Suricata installed, right? Mm. So you do have some of that low-level detect or maybe But then you got to write, you know, you got to write the rules for that, right? Like yep. what, the thing that I'm curious about is that it, I, I, I can't imagine it would be too difficult for someone to throw together, whether that's a, you know, a Suricata rules-based thing, you know, just a rules package or whatever, or whether it's a pretty web console side of it, which doesn't really exist, right? Like if you had a pretty, you know, web interface or whatever, just something, something simple that just gets you that base level of value out of Corelight. Yeah, we partner with Sigma on some of that today. So that, yeah. that layer your Sigma rules directly into your SIM and see some of that native detection capability on top of the Corelight data. Uh, but for a broad-based... But I'm um, talking, you know, standalone, you know, standalone, yeah. simple, right? Like that was the thing that I'm, that I'm curious about, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I think that the reason we're not there yet is for as powerful as Zeek is, we still exist in a world where a majority of folks are not Zeek aware. Yeah. So, so part of the challenge of... of well, and that's, that's, that's kind of what I suspected is the market's just not there for it. Right, yep. because the people who are going to do network are probably going to go a bit more serious than just throwing, you know, throwing a detection engine and a web interface, a pretty web interface, on one box, right? Right, and it's it, the folks that understand those that are Zigaware typically know what to go do with the data once they yeah. get it into their sim. For yeah. those that aren't, it's a a challenge in in getting them on board with this concept as the network as a data object, right? But once that becomes clear. I think you're you're absolutely on point and that how do you make it easy to to move from hey here's this voluminous but very rich and impactful data source to how do i build detections or how do i see immediate viability of of um, operational context 
on this data. And that's not there today for a lot. Yeah. But I mean, because, you know, because most of your customers, they got socks, you know, most of the, you know, most of where your revenue comes from, it's places with big teams, socks, you know, they know what to do with this stuff. But that's the thing I've been really curious about, like why there's not, you know, a simple, you know, Zeke based thing um, that just gives you that baseline. But I guess it's because, yeah, you know, a lot of people aren't doing network because they don't have those teams. So yeah, around and around we go. Well, as I, as I mentioned, keep an eye on us over the next couple months. And I think you'll see exactly what it is that you're, you're asking. <laughs> yeah. So I basically maybe predicted a release of yours. Sorry about that. Didn't mean to, uh, <laughs> didn't mean to ruin an announcement. Uh, Bernard Brantley, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the show to talk through uh, your integration with um, uh, Microsoft uh, Defender for IoT. That, that is interesting that they're doing that, that they're still pushing ahead with that. Because as I say, uh, you know, I did some work with a vendor that offered something very similar and it was always a very difficult sell. Uh, so the fact that they're interested in doing this maybe suggests that that is something people are getting around to now. But uh, yeah, always great to see you. Thanks again and we'll chat to you again soon. Thank you. Have a good one. That was Bernard Brantley from Corelight there. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Corelight for being a regular sponsor of the show. And that is it for this week's edition of the podcast. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I'll be publishing a Snake Oilers edition next week, but there won't be a weekly show. I'll be back on deck in a couple of weeks. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Listener.